2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 5 is the key verse of everything. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. But I want to concentrate really on one, one word in this verse. Um, because when properly understood, this one word actually changes everything about what we're doing. But sadly, the word is not in the ESV or the NIV or in almost any translation. I think it is in the Holman, but they keep changing so often I don't know what's in it. This word's not in the English translations because it is so foreign to our way of thinking that the, the translators daren't put it into the English translation. It'll be just open to misunderstanding all the time. So let's begin by fixing the translation. What it says is, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with, our, with, our, with, as your, your, with ourselves as your slaves, for Jesus' sake. Yeah, that's the right word. It's not servant, it's slave. Just as in English there's two words, servant and slave, and they mean different things. So in Greek there are two words, doulos and diakonos, slave and, ser and servant. They're quite different, they mean different things. Both of them serve, but they, they mean different things. So here in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5, the word is slave. Now Paul could have used the word servant if he wanted to, but he chose to use the word slave. And so we need to understand why. What, what was so important to talk about us as being slaves? So understanding Paul's point requires us to point one on our outline, understanding slavery, which you'll see is going to take quite some time in this talk just to go through. Let me start with the question, do Christians believe the Bible? <laughs> Your heads are all, I do anyway, and I presume others do. Surely Christians believe our Bible. But if Christians believe our Bible, why don't we obey it? And this has been the challenge over recent years. You see it in the, the silly kind of website discussions which go on and on and on and reach the stage where they talk about Adolf Hitler and also reach the stage where they talk about the Old Testament having, you know, different kinds of fabric in the same cloth and not allowed and, and so on. But you see it in actually much more significant discussions, the moral shifts of our society, moral shifts that have been away from Christianity, marriage questions and divorce questions, feminism, homosexuality questions. Our society on so many issues is moving further and further away from the Christian kind of conclusion of previous days, previous centuries. In these debates, there are some people who want to remain Christian, but go with the flow of society, hang in there as part of society, rather than be Christians who are oddballs out of touch with the rest of society. And so how do they do this? How can you embrace the shifts of, of an anti-Christian worldview and still keep holding of being a Christian? The answer is by reinterpreting the Bible. Uh, it's, it's, it's called unbelief by interpretation. That's basically what it is. And when it's called into question, they always point to slavery. They always point to that by saying, well, we've done it before in slavery, why can't we do it on this issue and this issue and this issue? 
After all, the Bible teaches slavery, they say, but we've come to reject it. In fact, we led the campaign against it. We reinterpreted the Bible to deal with the 18th century slave trade of West Africa and surely we can now interpret the Bible to deal with these modern questions, the 20th century questions, the 21st century questions, like, like feminism. We can embrace exactly what the world is saying about feminism and still be Bible believers by just reinterpreting all the passages about women in the Bible. But my brothers and sisters, when interpretation is king, the Bible is irrelevant. It just becomes a kind of nose of wax. You could, you're able to accommodate any belief under the sun if you're allowed to just creatively reinterpret what the Bible is saying. Whatever worldview our society, whatever culture our society imposes upon us, we can adapt to it if we're allowed to just reinterpret the Bible or interpret the Bible in the way that fits in with our current world's thinking. But slavery, Philip? Surely that's wrong, you want to say. I mean, didn't we change our mind on that great moral issue? And doesn't that prove that the Bible is culture-bound? And doesn't it show that we have to deculturize the Bible to, to read it properly for the 21st century? No, my friends. No, it doesn't. And that's not right. You don't have to remove slavery from the Bible and you don't have to practice unbelief by interpretation. Rather, what you've got to do is come to understand what the Bible teaches about slavery, teach it both from understanding historically what's there, but also to teach it about what it means in our world today. Because I want to declare to you that I believe in slavery. And what's more, you do also. You may not know it, but you do. However, to accept that verdict upon you and that profession on myself, you first have to move from prejudice to definition. Now prejudice, prejudging something, is a necessary evil. None of us come to any topic with just a kind of blank sheet of paper to write upon. It's necessary to have thoughts and ideas in order to understand what is being said and what is being taught. But of course it is an evil prejudging because it distorts the reception we have of new ideas, ideas that don't fit into our preconceptions. Now our prejudice on this topic is something that I just need to warn you about because our prejudice on this topic is that slavery is always only ever evil all the time. If that is your concept, then the fact that I've stood here saying I believe in, in slavery has got you undoubtedly rattled and wondering where can we kind of put him away for hate speech or whatever it is you do these days. But you see, slavery is seen like that. Slavery is a little bit like Adolf Hitler, uh, pedophilia, murder, always only ever wrong. Therefore, what do we do with it? our Bibles? Our Prime Minister made a mistake on radio a couple of, uh, I think, about a month ago, two months ago. He said, Australia, when it was founded as a settlement as New South Wales, was on the, ba on the basis that there would be no slavery, while slave ships continued to travel around the world. 
Yeah, sure, it was pretty brutal settlement. My forefathers, my foremothers were on the first and second fleets. It was pretty brutal place. But there was no slavery in Australia. Well, he was quickly taken to task on this argument by people who pointed out historically that's just not true. There was the reality of blackbirding, uh, a, a phrase that most of you haven't heard, I presume, these days, but it was kidnapping Pacific Islanders to get them to work in the Queensland sugar fields through the 19th century. To say nothing of the images that were given of First Nation people in chains on work gangs uh, from even the 20th century. But he was correctly reflecting the official British policy of the day that slavery was not legally permitted in the colonies, while ignoring at the same time the absurdity of a nation starting off as a colony of convicts doing hard labour and not being called a slave colony. It's a single, simple definitional problem really, isn't it? How come a conflict, how come a convict who's been transported across the world against his will, forced to work for no pay and often in chains, imprisoned in barracks or assigned to a master and under the threat of whip and noose, how come that doesn't qualify as a slave? What other things have to be added into the definition? to turn these poor bewitched people into slaves as opposed to convicts. It's a nice word, convicts, compared to slave, but some would say, well, it's because they're not owned, that the essence of slavery was ownership. Well, that's an 18th century definition of slavery, not a Bible, not a worldview of definition of slavery. It's far too narrow, both in the ancient world and in the modern world. The essence of slavery is not ownership, but captivity. The opposite of slave, what's the opposite of slave? Stop and think for a moment, what's the opposite of slave? You might want to think master or lord, but that's not the opposite of slave. The opposite of slave is free. That's the opposite. The words like slave, words like master, lord, they're correlatives, correlatives of slavery. Uh, like the word uh, uh, parent and child. Parent and child are not opposites. If you're a parent, it's because you've got a child. If you're a child, you have parents. It's like husband and wife. If you've got a wife, you're a husband. If you've got a husband, they're just correlatives. One implies the other. They go together. They're not opposites. King and subject, same thing. But the opposite of slave is free. All slaves, by definition, are in some form of captivity, some form of bondage, some form whereby they're not free. A servant, diakonos, that Greek word of the New Testament, was somebody who could serve whomever he wished to, whoever would pay him. But a slave, he had to serve his master, his lord, or the government, less so, or the temple, because they were temple slaves, for example. In every culture of the ancient world, slavery was a normal part of life. 
with a very wide application of relationships between the slaves and the master, and a hugely wide variation of what slaves did, even how they were termed. There were serfs, there were helots, who lived a different kind of slavery that would be in household slaves necessary. The only consistent element of all forms of, of slavery was that they were bound. They were in some way not free to do as they wished and serve whomever they wish. So think further with me about this concept of slavery. What are the reasons for slaves? I want to give you five quickly reasons for slave. First, from a master's perspective, the obvious reason is it was cheap and flexible labour. Cheap, flexible labour. Um, that comes at the top of the list from the master's point of view. You and I, we, we have electronic labour devices. A microwave, an oven, a, a washing machine, a dishwasher, a food mixer, a bread maker, a vacuum cleaner. All these things, you see. To say nothing of supermarkets and home deliveries and, and phones. And I mean, we have such... I just remembered to turn mine off now, just a minute here. Yes. We have such variety of things. Now, how would you run a household without them? How would you run a business without them? How would you run a society without them? Without any mechanical or electrical device, how would you run Australia today? How would you run your business? How would you run your home? How would you run your kitchen without any electronic or mechanical device? The answer the whole world has had all down human history is cheap labour. And there's nothing cheaper than slaves. All you've got to do is feed them and clothe them. That's all you've got to do. And they're yours to do with as... And they're flexible. The one slave can vacuum and can cook. Right? That, I mean, that's fantastic flexibility. You haven't got one of those electronic machines yet whereby they can do everything. But one slave, very cheap. Certain people worked out that slaves were sufficiently valuable that they could, and this is the second reason for slavery, trade and make profit. You can make a lot of money buying and selling slaves. So throughout history, slave traders have recruited slaves by fair means and foul, mainly by foul, almost always by foul, to be sold to others for profit. Uh, they would kidnap people, they would press gang men into the navy or into the merchant navy, they would conscript young men into the armies, they would lie, they would trick, they would deceive them, they, they would addict them to drugs, whatever it takes to bring them into bondage so that you can then sell them to others and make profit. And finally, of course, they'd breed them and so you could sell on their children. They're these are pretty bad reasons for slavery, aren't they? I mean, you can see why it's got a bad name. But there are also more justifiable reasons for slavery. Common reasons, really. First, there's number three on my list of five, is war and terrorism. That was a very common. See, what do you do with people who will not lay down arms? What do you do with people who want to kill you? What will you do with people who want to overthrow the government, especially violently? What are you going to do with people who are going to lay bombs for the citizens? And who are going, what do you do with them? You've got to do something. You can't just ignore them. What we do is we lock them up in prison. It's called slavery. 
for a day, for a week, for a year, for a decade. We look on some of them for all their life. They are just taken out of our society. What the ancient world did, because they didn't want to run prisons or hadn't thought up running prisons, what they did was they killed them. Or they put them in chains and put them to work. Rather than the community having to pay for prisoners, <laughs> the slaves have to pay for themselves by being workers. Or here's a fourth issue. What do you do with criminals? Number four on my list. How do you punish and deter or stop criminals? Again, we, we lock them up in prison. In case you don't think it's slavery, you know, in the New South Wales prison system, you work when you're there, $2 an hour. That's pretty poor country, isn't it? You'd know, you prefer to be free and living in McDonald's than paying $2 an hour, wouldn't you? That's all you paid. And there's no holiday pay, which is reasonable seeing there are no holidays. You know, I mean, you ponder it. And there's no superannuation or anything like that. We, we work our, our prisoners. Now, this is what England did. They sent them out to penal colonies to start nations like ours. That road that we, we came up, it's beautiful now, but it was originally made by slaves back in 1815. You know, we crossed the road, crossed the mountains in 1813, and within a very short period of time, Governor Macquarie, who, by the way, had his own slave whom he bought in India, uh, living in government house, but we, we don't mention that. The Prime Minister might get confused again. But... <laughs> Well, he was able to get the convicts to build that road in next to no time, much faster than our present government can do it. Yeah, slightly rougher road, of course. But what, do we, what did the ancient world do then with criminals? Well, not having long prisons, they'd have holding cells, but once found guilty, they'd be executed or whipped or put into slavery. There's your options. It's not all that very different today. We've got rid of execution, we've got rid of whipping, but we've still got them locked up and doing work for us. Another, for the final of the five issues I want to mention to you is debt. What do you do with people who won't pay their debts or who can't pay their debts? Again, for the ancient world, it was simple. You worked off your debt as a slave. You can't pay me? Well, come and work in my factories for the next two years. And by the time you finish working in my factories for two years, you will have paid your debt to me. That's a fairly simple mechanism of bondage and slavery. This is the most common reason for slavery. Prisons, of course, are very expensive and really didn't solve much of the problem. We had debtors' prisons up until the uh, 19th century. Charles Dickens' novels are written against debtors' prisoners uh, for very good reasons. They were really awful places and they didn't solve anything. The ancient world had many alternatives. Work gangs, they found, were actually fairly expensive because you had to pay guards to look after the slaves. And furthermore, the slaves were lazy and wouldn't do the work. So they found it was much easier to have a thing called serfdom, where you had to work on the estate, but you were given your own kind of lodgings, you were given your own paddock, and you could eat some from the food that you had made, but you were not free to leave the estate. You had to continue working there. It wasn't your land you were working, it was the master's land you were working. 
Uh, there were domestic slaves, there were temple slaves, there were field slaves, some with considerable independence. In fact, once the treasurer of the whole Roman Empire was a slave. But still, these people were slaves, they weren't free. Now, today we've developed something better than debtors' prison, we've developed bankruptcy laws. If you defraud people, well, you'll be sent to prison. But if for various reasons you've run into bankruptcy, you can be declared a bankrupt for three years, I think it is now, the present law, three years and a day or something. And during those three years, your debts are resolved. But of course, you lose freedoms in the process. Your assets can be taken for, uh, to pay for your debts. They will be taken to pay your debts. You're permanently registered on the National Index of Bankrupts. That's always, even when you're freed three years later, that's always there. So from there on, you'll have difficulty borrowing money. Uh, you can't travel overseas while you're a declared bankrupt or without permission. You can't be a company director. You, can, you can't earn over a certain amount of money because if you earn over that certain amount of money, they'll take that to pay the people that you you owe. You, you still have to pay some of those debts, whatever they are. There are some that you can't be forgiven of. And you lose the right of certain legal action. You can't just take a court case on and, and employ solicitors and the site. There are restrictions. A simpler version of debt you often see in amongst us, really, where people, it's called bond service, where people pay your university costs for you and you have to agree to work for them for a number of years afterwards in any conditions and circumstances they want you to. Uh, teachers who are forced out into country service. Uh, some med students get through medicine with a country service thing for the next five, ten years afterwards. Or, or military, you give them the military will give you a degree and then they'll put you in some country where they'll shoot at you or you'll have to shoot at them or others or something or other. So there are these bonded service that... All of this is slavery, all readily available today, practised frequently and some of it polite, nice and friendly, but it's slavery because you're not free. Now, our modern translations struggle to know what to say because the word slavery is such an Adolf Hitler kind of word, they don't want to use it. But on the other hand, it's the only word. So the ESV, for example, keeps putting a footnote and talking about bond servant. But bondservant is not something that we talk about very much, even though they're alive and well. Now, they're the reasons for slavery that still exist in the 21st century and still restrict people's freedom. Some forms and reasons of slavery, though, are very, very evil. The trading in slaves is evil. Conning people into legal, economic or drug dependency kidnapping them into bondage, selling them on to others for profit. That was the slave trade of the 18th century that evangelicals fought against because of the Bible, and they won. Today, that evil slavery still exists in our world. Uh, there's an organisation called Free the Slaves, and it gives out statistics such as I presume we now have up there. Yep, that is, slavery generates $150 billion a year for traffickers. There are tens of million, possibly 40 million slaves in the slave trade. We're not talking about bondage here. We're not talking. Sorry, we're not talking about bond servants here. We're not talking about teachers teaching out in the country. We're talking about slaves who are being traded. 
50% of the slavery is in work slavery, 37.5% in forced slavery of marriage, 12.5% in sex slavery, and 25% of those who are slaves they find are children. There is a dreadful trade in... I've met a slave trade, a lovely English woman. She was going in and out of Africa buying slaves in order to free them. But she bought them. The only way she could get them out of slavery was pay the slave traders to rescue them. An extraordinary lady. Slave trade is alive and well. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about slavery, which is slave trading is a form, the worst form of slavery, which is a function that is very widely accepted. I believe in it, and you do too. Well, enough of the background. What can the Bible say? What does the Bible say about slavery? Firstly, it reflects the reality of the world. That's part of the beauty of the Bible. It's about the real world, not the kind of inner-city hopeful aspirations of the world. You're saying that Peter says that we should not kill mice out in the mice plague. We should relocate them. Capture and release is what they want us to do with the mice. I'm sorry, whatever kind of weird philosophy of life that you may have, there is no way that someone out there is capturing and releasing the millions of mice that are eating out parts of our countryside at the moment. That just shows the... Anyway, I won't go about that absurdity. It's just... It's an absurdity beyond an absurdity. Well, I'm glad they've said it, because finally people are starting to say, you know all that stuff about animal rights? It's got a problem to it. Uh, especially people living in a mice plague. It reflects... The Bible reflects the reality of the world. Secondly... It consistently opposes slave trading. Now listen to the difference there, friends, because it's important, isn't it? It always opposes slave trading. Exodus chapter 21 expounds out the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And in verse 16 we read, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. That's slave trading. In that whole chapter about slavery... This one, slave trading, death sentence. And that's reflected in the New Testament as well. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, it goes through a long list of, of the Ten Commandments applied to the day and age, and I've highlighted the word there, enslavers. Because in the list of things that is totally unacceptable, enslavers, kidnappers, people who steal people and sell them on to others. That is totally unacceptable in the Bible, Old and New Testament. Thirdly, the Bible neither commands nor seeks to abolish slavery, but rather what the Bible does is regulate it with laws such as the ones we read in Exodus 21, limiting some of the common excesses and exploitations that were that have been given to slaves over the years. Fourthly, it gives instructions to slaves and to masters. So you could think of Ephesians chapter 6, and if you can't think of it, write it down and read it later. Ephesians 6, where the slave is told to fulfil his duties to his master as if he's serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And the masters are told to remember that they too have a master because they are the servants, they are the slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And fifthly, recognising that slavery is subject, being subject to somebody else, Paul writes in chapter 6 
of 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 1. 1 Timothy 6 1. Then all who are under a yoke of, as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honour so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. But you see how he perceives slavery. It's under a yoke. You know, the, the, the piece of metal, the piece of wood that combined the two bullocks together, that's the yoke. The, that, that put across the shoulders of the bullock. Well, so those who are under slave are under the yoke of slavery. It's not a desirable thing to be a slave. Uh, the scriptures say if you can avoid it, then don't, don't sell yourself into slavery. And if you get a chance to avail yourself to free yourself, then take it. It's in 1 Corinthians 7 verses 17 following. It, it's not a desirable thing, but it's not a, an identifying thing. You can be a Christian and a free person. You can be a Christian and a slave. Being a slave, being a free person is not what's important. Being a Christian is what is important. Well, enough of understanding slavery. I believe in it. You do also. So why is it important for us to understand all this? Because, firstly, it's the language of the Bible. If you're going to understand your Bible, you've got to think in the terms in which it thinks. And it thinks in terms of... The word slave occurs 126 times in the New Testament and the word servant only occurs 29 times in the New Testament. It's not about being a servant, it's about being a slave. But more importantly, slavery is written into the Bible's explanation of our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with each other and the world. Remember Jesus' invitation. Now turn this one up with me. Come across to Matthew's Gospel. I just like to hear the Bibles flipping and I can't hear the phones whirring. Matthew's Gospel, you're in chapter 11. Chapter 11. And picking up verse 28. Jesus speaking says, Come to me all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you, give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, the invitation of Jesus to be his disciple is an invitation to slavery. Take my yoke upon you. Be my slave, and I will be your Lord. The word Lord is a slave master. And so, Jesus' invitation is to accept him as your Lord, making yourself his slave. Well, moving to Jesus' Lordship, we have paradoxically moved from slavery to freedom, but also from freedom to slavery, as you'll see on points two and three on page four. I told you the first slide was going to take a long time. Don't worry, we haven't reached the key text yet. This is all introduction. Let's start with our slavery. Calling us slaves is saying we're not free. Humans are not free. And in some sense, we are in bondage. You see it in 2 Peter chapter 2 where he says, speaking of false prophets, they promise them freedom but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Whatever overcomes a person. Enslavement can be to anything. As 
addicts will tell you. You can be enslaved to alcohol or to gambling, to pornography or to heroin or, or to our phones or to gambling. You can, whatever overcomes you, whatever you no longer can control, has control of you. You are enslaved to it. But the real addiction of humanity, the one we all share, is our slavery to sin. Jesus taught our real problem of slavery in, in John chapter 8, verse 34. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. Let me give you three quick observations about that little verse. It's the principle of sin itself, not just of sins. As Paul puts it in Romans, we are under sin. And in Romans 6, he talks about being slaves of sin. Secondly, yet slavery to sin is not just in principle. We are slavery to sin in practice because of our sins. We practice the slavery that we've come into. And so anyone who practices or commits sin is a slave to sin. But thirdly, I want to point out to you that that slavery we have has an external and an internal force to it. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, please. Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, uh, somewhere there between Galatians, Philippians, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The external force is the spirit the spirit of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work within us, the Satan, the devil. That is the external force of evil amongst us. The internal force is our own flesh, our own passions, our own desires that you see there in verse 3. That is, the external force works on our sinful nature. So we don't need guards and chains and whips, etc., to be enslaved to sin because... We are within ourselves the slaves to sin. Go back to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7. Don't you hate it when the person next to you just opens the Bible, bang on the right spot, first go? It's a fluke, don't worry. Mark 7, verses 20, 21, 21, 23. For from within... Out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. Well, what chance have slaves who are under the powers of spiritual forces and who themselves by their own nature are now corrupted into slavery to sin? What chance have we got? And the answer is... Fear not, Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus said back in John chapter 8, just after verse 34 saying that we are all slaves to sin, Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. 
free, free indeed. Thank God Almighty, I'm free indeed. The world loves to quote Jesus at the, in John 8 because Jesus said the truth will set you free. But the world always admits the precondition. If you remain in my word, if you remain in my word, the truth will set you free. Nor does the world ever explain what you're being set freed from. For it's not just the, the truth, it's, it, it's the truth, but it's not just truth. It's the Son who sets you free. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed, really free, truly free, properly free, because the Son is setting you free from the slavery to sin. That's our problem. And this setting free is what is meant by the word redemption. Redemption is a slave word. It's a word of buying freedom, purchase your freedom. Especially most of them are debtors slaves. They owe the master all this money. But if they can save up the money, they can pay the master off. Or if they've got a good uncle who can come along and, and help them buy them out of their slavery. Or if there were English women who would go around and do it back in the days of Jesus, they would. So, but it's the rescuing by paying money. It's redeeming. It's liberating. And this is what Jesus' death has done for us. He came to redeem us, to free us, to purchase our freedom. Here's a series of verses for us. In Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins for our trespasses, uh, forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This is about forgiveness. It's about his bloodshed. Or again, we can think of the, the next verse in Romans chapter 3, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a turning aside God's anger by his blood to be received by faith. Or again, you can think in Colossians chapter 1, talking about God, how he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you don't understand our slavery is to sin, you won't understand our redemption is out of slavery to sin. And the way in which we're redeemed out of the slavery to sin is by the bloodshed of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what he came to do. What great news we are freed from our... This sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ is the means by which we're redeemed. But just as the world doesn't know what we're freed from, the world doesn't know what we're freed for. Which brings us to our third and main heading, from freedom to slavery. See, Paul wrote to the Galatians. Turn with me in uh, chapter 5, you'll see this. Uh, you'll find a couple of verses we'll go to there, Galatians 5. In verse 1, he starts off about freedom. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He has set us free from the slavery to sin, but he set us free for freedom. But what is the freedom for which we have been set free? Well, one thing is, don't go back to the slavery. In that context, he's talking about the slavery of being under the law, which only condemned slaves of sin. The world is very keen for freedom. 
freedom from from tyranny, from oppression, from, from conformity, from poverty, but never really about freedom for anything in particular, because freedom for requires you to know what the good life is, how to live. They don't know that. They can see evil. They've got no idea what good would be. It's not sufficient to be free from. You have to be free for. That's, it's the problem with nearly every revolutionary group. In the revolution, they get rid of the tyrants and then they put themselves up as the new tyrants. It's just a change in tyranny. It's not actual freedom that they've gone with. Or the problem of war, where you go and win the war, but you can't maintain the peace. So what have you done? It's not sufficient to be free from. You have to be free for. Freedom is not an absolute state, though. The world, the flesh, the natural person wants freedom for themselves. Uh, freedom to suit myself. Freedom to serve myself. To be the master of my soul and the captain of my own fate. But that's just to go back to slavery to sin. That's what sin is, self-centeredness, self-government, self it's autonomy. Sinful self-centeredness is what I've been freed from. We're not freed from sin in order to sin. We're freed from sin to be completely different, to be changed, to no longer live for ourselves but for him who died for us and rose again. And so we come finally to Christian slavery and to being slaves of Christ. I've arrived at the topic. Just like to point that out to you in case you're wondering. We have changed kingdoms, we've changed masters, we've now embraced Jesus as our Lord, our master. The lordship of Jesus is the slavery of Christians because we've taken his yoke upon ourselves. We've become the slaves of Christ, but his yoke is easy. His burden is light. The, the apostles were glad to embrace the title slaves of Christ. James, Peter, Jude, Paul, all wrote of themselves as the slaves of Christ. For he who is called, we're told in 1 Corinthians 7, he who is called when he's a slave, he's a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when, he's a, when he becomes a Christian, why, he's a slave of Christ. And as his slaves, we have an amazing master, for he purchased our freedom at the cost of his own death. He who knew no sin became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. In fact, he enslaved himself. Jesus enslaved himself for us. And so set us an example by laying down his life for the salvation of other people, unworthy people, enemies. Think of Philippians 2 verses 5 following. You should think of these because Paul tells you to think like this. Have this mind amongst yourselves which you have in Christ Jesus, who though he was a form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a... Every translation has servant. Slave is the word. Jesus took the form of a slave in humbling himself to the point of death on the cross. So what does our Lord and Master want us to do? Well, if you've got Galatians 5 still open to you, look down there at verse 13. 
We're not to return to our old slavery, but what are we to do? For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. You got that? You'll never guess what the verb to serve is there, will you? Yep, it's the verb to slave. Enslave yourself to one another. Serve as slaves to one another. And here we arrive finally at this week pre-MYC and tomorrow MYC. But it's not only this week, it's not only this weekend. It's not only MYC, it's wherever you go if you have Jesus as your Lord. He wants us to serve others as if they were our masters, to lay down our lives for their interests, especially to lay down their, our lives for their salvation. Not to think of ourselves, but always to think of others and how we can be of help to them, how we can be of assistance to them. So come back to our text from which you've forgotten there was one. No, come back to it, right? You'll remember it when it goes up, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. Our message isn't us. Our message is Jesus. Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves, where do we fit in? As your slaves, says Paul to the Corinthians. With ourselves as the Corinthian, Paul and Timothy, as the Corinthians slave, laying down their lives for the salvation of the Corinthians, laying down their lives to serve the Corinthians in every way. So here tomorrow come the hordes of MYC, and here even today is the semi-horde of pre-MYC. And what we are called upon to do is to enslave ourselves for each other and to enslave ourselves for those who come and join us in these chairs in the coming days. This weekend we are to serve each other as slaves. But hang on, hang on, you say, aren't we the slaves of Jesus? How could Paul be Corinthian slaves? How can we be the other student slaves when we're supposed to be Jesus' slave? And notice the last phrase of our verse in 2 Corinthians 4, 5. If we could put it back up again, you'll see it. I don't know that we can put it back up, but there we go. Aren't they clever? With ourselves as your slaves, for Jesus' sake. That is, what does your Lord and Master want you, slave Christian, to do? He wants you to enslave yourself to those around about you. So you serve him by serving others. You're enslaved to him by enslaving yourself to others. In every way, we can use our freedom in Christ to enslave ourselves to one another. Because in every way, our service of Christ is to enslave ourselves for one another. Here's the challenge. Because you've been freed from self-centred sinfulness and are now slaves of the Lord Jesus, the one who laid down his life for others, you must follow his example and be a slave like him to others around about you for their salvation in particular. We're slaves who must now work for Jesus and he wants us to work for one another. My friends, this is not optional extra teaching for super spiritual Christians.
This is what it means when we say Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Lord. Well, your Lord wants you to serve as a slave the people around about you. Is he really your Lord? Well, then lay down your life for those around you. Very simple, isn't it? But if he's not your Lord, he's not your saviour either. And so the first thing you need to do is sort out your life with him. Let's pray while Tashin and the Musos are coming up. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we may indeed be free from our slavery to sin, that we may indeed be those who can now serve as your free men and women, enslaved to our loving Lord and Saviour. Help us, Father, to work out how this will, what this will mean in our day-to-day -day activities of serving those around about us that you have given to us to serve. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.